Law Talk with BJ, the podcast where trial attorney and legal commentator BJ Bernstein and her guests discuss the latest issues from around the legal world. BJ is a frequent commentator on television and radio. She's unique in that she not only comments on legal issues, having been lead counsel on numerous high-profile cases of national interest, but her relatable personal style allows the viewer to understand the law behind the headlines and why it's important. Now, here's your host, B.J. Bernstein. Welcome to Law Talk with B.J. So, this podcast is the product of listeners in that, you know, I try to choose a lot of topics and then I put on a Facebook page, hey, what do you want to know more about? And the number one category was the one we're going to be talking about today, and that is divorce. You know, when relationships collide with the law, uh, it is far more emotional when you throw in the rules of the law that people know and don't know. And so for that, I have actually called on two amazing attorneys, both of them dear friends, which you'll probably be able to tell. First, Tina Shaddix Roddenberry. She is a partner at Boyd Collar, Nolan Tuggle, and Roddenberry. She has been practicing law as long as I have because we were both in law school together, first year law school in the same section. She is on serves on the Board of Governors of the State Bar of Georgia since 1995. She's won an award from the State Bar of Georgia on family law for exemplary professionalism. She is master in the Charles Longstreet Weltner Family Law Inn of Court, which is a prestigious um, invitation to be a part of, and president and member of the Georgia chapter of Academy of Matrimonial Lawyers. And she's one of only 32 fellows. So first, hello, Tina. Welcome. Hey, BJ. I'm so excited to be here. And lawyer number two. Equal to number one, but someone's got to go first. Another dear friend, Ivory T. Brown. She has been 30 years as an attorney, starting off as a prosecutor in Harris County, Texas. She was the first African-American appointed as a magistrate judge in Gwinnett County. And then she started finding her real calling in law that she's been doing for a number of years, and that is family law and also entertainment and sports law as well. She has been a super lawyer. She has been chair of the family law section of the State Bar of Georgia and also um, past chair of the entertainment and sports law section of the State Bar of Georgia. She's, as I said, a super lawyer. So is Tina, so am I. I'm not sure what that says for super lawyers, how they give that out. Um, and on the side, she's a poet and a writer, and you may hear that as she talks because she definitely has a poetic voice. Welcome, Ivory. Thank you for having me, BJ. So, divorce. You know, it's let's we're going to start at the beginning, which is one party knows maybe that things are wrong and the other party maybe has no clue that things or has the idea something's wrong, but not ready to make a legal move. So I'm going to start with you, Ivory. What do you advise someone when they're just even thinking, I need to get out of this marriage? You may find this interesting because the first advice, the first step that I um, 
give to a client isn't necessarily to file for divorce. It is to exercise all options available to you to make an informed decision. And that may be, BJ, talking to someone and uncovering that they think there's an opportunity to salvage their relationship. And so you might um, encourage them to undertake therapy, family therapy, marital counseling, co-parenting counseling, and the like. But your first avenue is not necessarily going to be, let's file for divorce. Um, So first, you have to hear your client out. And I have found in my practice that what people most want is to be heard. So you have your client come in for a consultation. That client will tell you what the problems are. You can pretty readily find out whether or not there is a hope for a reconciliation and a, a thought that they might want to engage in marital counseling. Or if there is no hope and they are ready to go, then you have to start the process of um, preparing your client for divorce. And that means collecting documents, information, et cetera. I am always I'm reading three books, one for my mind, one for my body, and one for my soul. And I have my clients try to undertake that same avenue. Um, Make certain that you're taking care of your mind, i.e., let's think of that as your brain, collecting information. We want to know where the money is, what it costs to maintain your household, um, uh, how much you're going to need to maintain your children, those sorts of things. Um, Then you look at your body. Make certain that your client is healthy and doing well, but also, again, going to be able to maintain your um, body yourself in a residence with food, clothing, and shelter. And then soul. Make certain that your client is um, capable of grieving. And the emotional toll of this choice, whether you should be in it or not, I think you both see, and Tina, you probably see that as well, that the emotional toll, just even coming into your office or picking up the phone to say to somebody, um, how do you handle that? That is a, and how do you or is there anything different than you do from Ivory? No, I, I actually agree. I, I, I love Ivory's creativity and I haven't put it in those terms, but that's exactly what I do, too. And, and along with the grieving, there is an a, initial conversation with a client that I have that I don't mention. Are you in therapy? Have you gotten some support during this process? And, and I refer many. And if, if they are considering trying to salvage the marriage, I refer them to marriage counselors, but I always refer them to a therapist. I talk about if, if there's been an issue of depression, which we see a lot uh, tied with divorce. You know, have they considered medication? Have they talked to professionals about that? Do you see a difference between your male clients and your female clients in the receptiveness to do that kind of inventory and counseling prior to even going to the courthouse? I do believe I do see a difference between men and women, and I do believe women are more receptive to all kinds of alternatives to support themselves during the process. And some men, not all, um, but some men are more, I can handle this. I don't know if I feel comfortable going that route. Um, Is there, Ivory, a benefit of convincing that male client to go ahead and do, because if you think about it for a moment, what you just said, let's say the wife has hired Tina and the husband's hired Ivory. Um, Ivory probably knows that Tina is already making sure that client is in therapy. You know, are you pushing someone who is not as open, not as uh, society is in, in sometimes as 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 supportive of the male who's going through it. We always think about the woman as much as the hurt of the man. How do you handle him? I think that it is important to encourage your, your male client to receive therapy, not simply because 
maybe the other side is is getting that support, but because it operates as a support for your own client and your own case. Because therapy isn't simply an arena where you go in and um, you tell someone your problems. These clients can get tools to help them make decisions. And in a divorce process, you've got to make decisions not only about your children, which is the most important thing, but about your assets. And so if you have someone gain the tools to help them make decisions and to process, again, their grief and um, disappointment, right? Um, The reality is people are disappointed when they get a divorce or when they're divorcing whether or not they want it. And so they have to learn to process that as well. So absolutely. And BJ, they're also cultural considerations and they're based on your community. Um, Therapy may not be as prevalent as in other communities, but I think that it is um, a support system that we as uh, family lawyers utilize and hope to utilize more in the future. So you're at this first meeting, you're encouraging them to get therapy but you're also talking to them about some practical legal advice. And I know I was talking to you in advance. You know, one of the things I've always heard is, you know, before you tell your spouse you're intending to see the lawyer, you see the lawyer. Um, And then the question is, once you've seen that lawyer, do you tell them you saw that lawyer if you're not ready to pull the trigger? Um, Tina, I know I've sent you some folks where this has precisely come up. Um, so can you give us your thoughts on that scenario? Yes, it really depends on the circumstances that you're facing with the client. And that's where listening to what the client has to say and really making sure you're addressing what the client is telling you is so important. But it, under certain circumstances, if they aren't quite sure and they're concerned about um, whether they can keep save the marriage, then I would say go on and have the conversation with your spouse. Be open and transparent because that's going to be important to, to have a successful marriage. But if it's a situation where there's some distrust, there's some concern about some behavior. So distrust because of an affair, distrust because of money, distrust because of alcoholism. Am I hitting the buttons there? Yes. Yes. Yep. Exactly. Mental health issues. Um, Then you don't run and tell your spouse. Then you really need to start thinking about protecting the children and yourself. And so I advise don't let the other side know. In fact, you know, we arrange for cash payments. Um, There might be a third party, a family member that pays us. So the record isn't on a credit card or on a cancel check. All right, because if someone gets the credit card and sees, oh, I've gone to see Tina Roddenberry and I look up what you do, I've got a hint that something's going on. Right, So that also talks about some of the pre-planning before you actually file. Ivory, let's talk about that pre... Let's say now where you've got the person with the therapist in the ideal world. They've talked to you. They've talked to them. They really realize this is a marriage. I must leave. Right. What are you telling them BJ, about the you, first step? BJ, you'd be surprised how many people come into our offices and have no idea what it takes to operate their household, have no idea how much money their spouse makes. And so you began the process of collecting information, the same information you're going to be required to give to the court to prove what you need in the way of support, that is alimony and or child support, you need to begin to collect. And it's not necessarily a surreptitious um, endeavor. It is You have documents that are available to you. Many people come in and they have access 
to their uh, partner's passwords. They can locate their joint bank accounts, et cetera. Start documenting and collecting bank account information, um, stocks, um, other assets, and be prepared to fill out what's called a DERFA or Domestic Relations Financial Affidavit, which provides the court with all and sundry, and then have the documentation that supports each line item of that domestic relations financial affidavit. So utility bills, bank account statements, that sort of thing. So you've got income and expenses that both have to be detailed. Yes. For a ju- and, and if you're wondering, if you're wondering why, as a listener, it's because there is a judge there that's actually going to decide what happens, and that's what the judge is going to want to ask from you. So you're not really snooping at this point. It's more, it's practical because the court's going to demand it. Right. And it's also necessary for us to start advising our client on what they can, what their post-divorce life may look like in terms of what assets they may have and what opportunity for child support and and um, alimony. And in, in addition, we have our clients look into what assets they had at the time of the marriage that, you know, if it's an early marriage and they're young, there you say, we had nothing. But if it's a later marriage, Premarital assets are very important. And in the initial conversation, we'll say, what did you have? Did you have a retirement account? Did you own a home? And we start asking them to start gathering documents because you can make a claim in a divorce to get your separate property back if it was premarital under certain circumstances. So that's important. And then in addition, we want to talk about if custody is an issue. We start preparing our client on, you know, what kind of custody you want. We explain the types of custody, legal custody and physical custody. And we go through what a judge can help them decide if they can can't settle their case and come up with a parenting plan. But sometimes some parents need a lot of pre-divorce work and improving their custody chances. And so we have a lot of conferences with folks who are saying, I want to get divorced. And we hear that they may not be successful in getting the custody that they're interested in. And we say, why don't you come back to us? Let's see if you can start improving your chances of and we're going to talk about that in another podcast because I, I'll i go ahead and say this is the first of two um, with these two guests because it is such a comprehensive thing. So going back to the money first, because yes. I think I, people worry about the kids, but, but, but as you're saying, you know, being able to pay the bills, where are you going to live? Who stays in the house? Like that's always, I think, a, a huge, you know, how do you maneuver? And you've... As you see it in films where people get up to and you hear stories of very creative ways of getting somebody else out of the house so they can declare it as their own or the husband won't move out or the wife won't move out and they're both in there. And that's another, you know, Friday night movie of the week situation. So how, Ivory, do you advise the client at that early meeting in dealing with the residents? I think that who is going to keep the house depends on so many factors. It's really hard to to say, but looking at um, that family structure, the likelihood is if there is one parent who's going to have primary physical custody of children, if children are involved, that parent is more likely to be awarded the house, at least on a temporary basis, than the other parent. We hesitate to encourage our clients to do anything that is untoward or inappropriate, such as getting a temporary protective order or anything that might um, force an individual out of the house um, because of violence or threats of violence. If that's not a legitimate concern, that will come back to haunt you later. So you're talking about the situation where, because obviously some of the reasons for divorce are domestic violence or emotional violence, so to speak, where you are abusing someone um, emotionally. um, And the courts do have a certain process where you can go get an emergency order. Um, 
And granted to our listeners, these are Georgia lawyers, but some of these concepts, am I right, are across the board, the nation that slight nuances with the state you're in. And as I say, always with every podcast, you want to check with a lawyer in the jurisdiction that you live in to get the absolute advice. But, you know, let's talk. Where do we go there, um, Tina? With a family violence? Yeah. Um, as as Ivory said, you really need to make sure that you meet the factual requirements to have one. You want to be very careful and judicious in advising a client to get a temporary protective order. Um, you have to have actually have had physical violence in the past um, and a fear that it's going to continue. And it could be you or it could be children in the home that this violence has occurred to. Um, and if you do have it and it's appropriate... Um, then you need, and your client is really scared for his or her well-being. You want to make sure you get to court, and you can. It's called an ex parte order. You go. The other side doesn't know you're there. You present your facts. The judge will question you, and if the facts support the petition, they'll they'll immediately sign an order, and that order will be served on their spouse or their partner um, by a sheriff, and they'll be removed from the house right then. And then there's going to be a second hearing that will be happening within 30 days so the other side gets to present their side of the story when that second hearing happens 30 days later because there's a lot of intensity and i've i always say y'all sometimes call me when a divorce goes criminal and a divorce tends to go criminal at this time period it seems um with the because the restraining order is in place saying you can have no contact or you can't go over there. It has a lot of rules. Someone breaks the restraining order, which gets you in trouble with the court that issued it in, in the divorce con place, but also can criminally face a criminal charge and be arrested um, for violating that order. So how do you work with clients in that situation and, and kind of give some insight about how that restraining order can can work when emotions are as high as they tend to be in some divorces? I think that the restraining order, um, BJ, can be <clears throat> helpful in calming the waters. So even in that limited period from the ex parte application to the hearing, it could be helpful in calming the waters. And so I would encourage my clients to abide by the terms of that restraining order. You'll have your day in court. But if nothing more, um, it will allow the parties to uh, separate and to end the, to have a ceasefire, if it were. Um, attorneys in the domestic arena um, can customarily get in and work out an agreement that if there if are children involved, that will allow access to the children, can work out an agreement that puts terms of, um, stay away terms within the confines of the divorce so that we've moved beyond the ex parte and moved into the divorce arena and um, allowed there to be terminology that protects the party that feels um, threatened, but also allows your client to have access to the children. And that's most important. I think the courts would look at, especially in a, a situation where there are children, the courts are going to want to facilitate the parent-child bond as long as the child isn't the victim or the person being threatened. And so, um, and I think Tina will probably agree, foremost, your client has to abide by the terms of the ex parte order. 
Um, it is a bad um, look. The narrative is problematic if your client violates during the term between application and hearing. You are more likely than to have a long-term 12-month TPO, and that's problematic across the board. And for the judge who's hearing the case, the judge already gets an opinion about your client um, because they went on that emotional side and didn't abide by that order. Um, and then the judge wonders, are you, when are you going to abide one of my orders? Because I'm the judge. Um, and Tina, I know you've had, y'all both have, but I'm going to go to Tina right now on this. You know, judges, they tend to, in the courts, to be assigned to family court for a period of time. And so they have a real familiarity with the lawyers within family courts, um, the divorce lawyers. Uh, how can a client help you with credibility with that judge? Because you know the nuances of the judge. Every judge has a different, slightly different idea how they want things done. How do you get that to your client? And, and why should your client be concerned about the judge and, and, and working with that judge? Yes. Um, well, in Fulton County, we do have a family division. And so we do have particular judges that sit and hear only family court cases. But throughout the state of Georgia, and this isn't apply nationally, there may be some cities that have family courts and some that don't. But I think we're the only county in Georgia that has, there might be a small, I think Augusta may have a judge that hears mostly family law. But regardless, the judge that you are assigned in your case um, has a lot of discretion over everything in your case, who lives in the house temporarily and permanently, who pays what bills temporarily and permanently, and then of course, custody. And so Early on in the process, you start educating your client on what a judge will expect the party to do positively and, and, and counsel against taking negative steps in their case that could jeopardize the final ruling for the judge. So as soon as you know the judge that is assigned to your case, you start, because of your experience, knowing how he, his or her biases, they have implicit biases, each one of us does, you start educating them on, on those biases and encourage the client to improve their conduct and be aware of this throughout the case. And some clients are better listeners and can comply and some not. And that's where the therapy comes back in because you're, please deal with these issues in therapy so you can really make um, some good evidence for you. Family law is unusual in any other case in that our evidence develops until the day of the divorce. The judge can consider everything, assets acquired, um, um, income earned, custody issues up until the day of the divorce. Most lawsuits, an event has occurred and the facts are fixed at that p past time. Excellent point. And so we are always working with our clients on the evidence in a case. It's it's We're real counselors. Family law lawyers are very much counselors in addition to being an advocate. Which is why this relationship is so important. And as you're choosing a lawyer, I know sometimes people get names I tend sometimes to give one or two, three names and say, you know what, you may want to talk to all of them to see who's a match to you. Um, the one thing that I would say is, you know, a lawyer, and it happens even in my area of law where someone says, you need to go get the the meanest, baddest, you know, just terrifying lawyer possible. And I sometimes pause because I'm like, well, you know what, all of us have that element if we're litigators, that we know how to know how to go in for the kill, but maybe that's not the best thing in family law, or or you know, some. Do you see that amongst your sisters and brethren in the bar that practice this way, or do you think there's a recognition of, 
your responsibility to a family, that it's different. You're talking about a family. <clears throat> you know, BJ, I was, you, you were um, asking Tina um, the most recent question, and I was thinking, I doubt that Tina has um, a multitude of clients who um, don't abide by her advice and don't follow um, her lead um, because that's her reputation. She is known as a consummate professional and an excellent lawyer. And so people who come to her probably um, are like-minded. And that's essentially my response to your question. Um, we have individuals who are high conflict. And those are the people that rush to the robe. They want someone in a black robe behind a bench to say to the other party, you're wrong. You're bad. You're wrong. You're terrible. I'm going to punish you. And those people probably wouldn't gravitate toward me or Tina. Those people, but you can always find someone who is like-minded. And so there are attorneys that they might be able to locate who will operate in the manner that they wish. And that is, um, we call it a high conflict manner. And that is just to, you know, litigate, 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 um, accuse, um, run up the bill. Yes, exactly. And so there are um, clients who will want that to happen. There are attorneys who are happy to provide that service. But across the board, I would say, as a rule, most attorneys want the um, best for their clients. And they hope to do it in a way that does not um, uh, infringe upon the marital estate um, significantly. And that I, I used to say, um, in my 30s, I wanted to win. In my 40s, I wanted the right thing to happen. And in my 50s now, um, I hope to do the best job possible for my client and have the best result possible. And so um, I think that most of us just want to represent our clients well, um, do a good job, and um, leave them better than we found them. And I do want to mention in divorce, um, we do see the, I, I call these lawyers who just want to, you know, burn down everybody, just take everybody in their path. That's more of a traditional, his, some commercial litigator approach. But in family law, um, there's the concept of dividing assets in a divorce is called equitable division of marital of the marital estate. And the court can consider in its equities how the litigation played out and how people treated each other. And so I think most I think all the really good family law lawyers and most family law lawyers encourage our clients not to uh, aggressively litigate because they know when the judge is making the final decision on everything that the equities of how the case was handled during the divorce could really weigh in what assets they end up with, as well as, and it's importantly, the attorney's fees that will have to be paid. You can get an award of attorney's fees in a divorce case, and the judge can decide because of the lit the way the litigation was handled and financial circumstances. That's probably the most, that is the primary consideration the judge looks at when awarding attorney's fees, but you can also argue about the conduct of the litigation. What about, now, what about the situation where it actually goes to trial? How often does a divorce go to trial versus settlement? And when it does go to trial, what of the advice you've given shifts, if any? They're all pondering. Well, uh I believe we have in Georgia, um, and, and I would imagine this is state throughout the United States, you have a right to a temporary hearing to get some temporary issues resolved, like who's going to live in the house and who's going to pay what bills. And you have a permanent he hearing, the final divorce, which really decides on a permanent basis who lives where and who pays what bills. And family law lawyers go to court 
not unfrequently for temporary hearings. You know, it could be a, a, few, a couple a month, a few a month. Um, on a permanent basis, though, it's rare, I believe, to have a final trial. Um, usually it's a custody. My experience is you have a final trial when two parents cannot make a decision on custody as opposed to dividing their assets and who's going to pay. Um, built in our systems, and I think this is a national move too, we have the opportunity to mediate cases. And that is where the vast majority of divorces are resolved. So it's rare to have a final trial. In mediation, is there any special thing that you advise the client who's entering mediation as to how to keep their expectations in check as opposed to, you know, wanting everything that they, you know, that they have a checklist that seems immovable. And I realize part of that is on the mediator, but as counsel for a client, how do you work with that client? I think that um, we all counsel our clients on what we think a judge might rule. Um, And going from there, Resolution um, doesn't always mean that resolution should be fair. It doesn't always mean that you're happy with it, but you can live with it. And I like to tell my clients, if you can live with it and it seems fair and equitable and something that a judge might um, rule, then um, save yourself the cost and expenditure, the pain and suffering of a trial. Because a trial is, as we all know, unknown. We don't know the result. The judge could love us or hate us. We don't know. It's a a person who's a human being on a bench um, with a limited period of time to listen to your story and um, to make a ruling. And so I like to tell my clients that a mediation is the last clear chance that you may have to have a voice that could control the outcome. And you can control the outcome. Nothing happens at mediation that you don't agree upon. Either you reach an agreement or you don't. And so um, I think that as a rule, mediation is the best thing that's happened in family law. It really is. And I tell my clients when they leave, neither side is going to be happy at a mediation because you don't get everything you want. But but it is in, in a trial, you won't get everything you want. And the risk is a big unknown, and it's very expensive to have a final trial. So walking away from mediation with both of you not that happy, that's a successful result for getting that family divorced. In terms of reality checks, in addition to me, and as Aubrey said, we tell them what we expect. I've advised clients before to go get a second opinion with another family law lawyer who has experience with that judge and hear what he or she has to say um, about what they can expect, because sometimes clients do not want to hear it. But you need it is your job to, and then you you put it in writing. You say, this is so important. I want you to see and read this. This isn't just me telling you. It's serious. And so make your decisions accordingly, because if you're going to ask for something that is not an expectation I can have for you in court, you know, I just want you to know ahead of time. Well, this has been, I've learned a lot myself. And we're going to have another episode with regard to custody. But I think this primer on divorce is a important place to start and the proceedings. And as I do with every episode of Law Talk with BJ, I pick a tea that's appropriate for our conversation. And we have been sipping on a tea that includes lime flower, which is also known as a linden flower. And the German thought with regard to the this particular tea is it helps unearth the truth in a certain matter. matter. And I think that's appropriate for divorce because we each, two parties, at one point, they loved each other. And I think it's hard to, when we lose a love, when we're little kids and it's our first little 
boyfriend in third grade who gave us a valentine and then it continues on as you get older and you start dating and you go out with people and then you think you have found the one and it may have been the one for then at that moment but maybe not for a lifetime and um, looking at the truth of the matter and self-reflection on your client's point of view is what I'm hearing from both of you that you're advocating both sides need to take a hard look at the truth of their relationship and where they are and what's best for their family to make this difficult decision. And so on that note, I thank you so much. And uh, we wish everyone the best with their marriages. But if not, find a good lawyer. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you, BJ. Thanks, BJ. This podcast is not to be construed as legal advice. With any legal issue, you should reach out to a professional attorney that practices law in the state and area of law for which you need information or consultation. Law Talk with BJ does not establish an attorney-client relationship, which is only formed when you have hired an attorney and signed an engagement agreement or contract. It's Law Talk with BJ Music Theme, written and produced by Atlanta Audible. This podcast copyright 2018, BJ Bernstein, Esquire.